So, hi, everybody, and a very warm welcome to episode 128 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A, where your questions and votes really do drive the show. Ella and Adriana are both over in the chat today, so please do introduce yourself to them and let them know your name and also, of course, the city from where you are joining. Um, It's great to do that. It's really good to introduce yourself. We will, of course, post a link into the chat uh, for you to vote up the questions that you would most like answered. And of course, you're most welcome to add your own. Now, if your question is selected, your name is going to appear in the credits at the end of the show. So do get your questions in early and stay with us to see all of that happening. Today, we're going to be talking about how to build a career in the world of cybersecurity. And in particular, how to become a NIST cybersecurity professional. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST for short, it's an agency of the United States Department of Commerce, I think, and they promote American innovation and competitiveness around the world. They do some great work across a wide portfolio, and their cybersecurity framework is quickly becoming one of the most leading and highly adopted worldwide. Now, helping us to make sense of all of this is a fantastic panel of experts who are here to answer your questions rather than mine. So let's jump straight in and meet them all. Mike Battistella joins us today. Um, He is, of course, the president of Solutions Cubed, an award-winning IT service management and cybersecurity services business who work in federal government and commercial markets um, across all, really, industries. Mike's also responsible for government solutions over at the DVMS Institute as well. So welcome back to Level Up, Mike. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. You're most welcome. Sabajit joins us again. Sabajit Bose, of course, is the owner of Cyber Services, a regional cybersecurity organization based out in Singapore, working across the Southeast Asian region. Um, Sabajit works in different industries, helping his clients build up their resilience and adopt best practice and so on. Welcome back to Level Up, Sabajit. Lovely to see you again. Thank you so much, Nick. And it's really nice to be back again and to be part of this uh, effort. Thank you so much. Okay, excellent. All right, thank you so much. Um, Indeed, Rick Lemieux is the co-founder and the chief product officer over at ITSM Solutions, and he's based in Rhode Island, which is in New England, uh, in the northeast uh, corner of the USA, I think, from memory. Rick is responsible for strategic product direction and is a certified NIST cybersecurity professional in his own right. So welcome back to Level Up, Rick. Great to see you again. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's been a while since I've been on the Level Up show. So in between the time I was on last time and this time, I actually moved to the western half of the U.S. So I'm now living in California. Uh, so oh. you know, we, haven't ca- we haven't caught up in a while. So my apologies for that. But I'm looking forward to today's show and uh, hopefully I can contribute something of value. That's, that, that's quite all right. You've gone from one side, top right hand corner to the kind of not quite the bottom left hand corner, but fairly close to the bottom left-hand corner. Absolutely, I think. Uh, absolutely yeah. yep. 
Okay. All right. Very good. My geography, by the way, if you're watching online, is fairly limited. So if I do misplace you somewhere on the world map, feel free to correct me. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, David. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Rick. Uh, David also joins us. David Moskovitz is the Exec Director for Content Development at the DVMS Institute. And I think it's fair to say he is the architect behind the DVMS content itself. He's also the lead author, of course, of several publications and an accomplished service management professional himself. Welcome back to Level Up, David. Nick, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with, uh, I just hope I can contribute with this, the rest of this illustrious panel. Uh, David, look, look, my friend, I'm terrified, okay, because, because you're all experts in cyber and I am a humble user of technology. All right, so um, between us, we will muddle through, I'm sure, and help the audience out by answering their questions. I'm completing our panel today is Patrick von Schlag. You may well recognize him because he has been a regular contributor and supporter of Level Up from the very beginning. Um, Patrick, of course, works with his clients across a range of industries, helping them adopt leading practice in the design, the use, the management, and, of course, maintenance of high-performing infrastructure and data governance and all things cyber resilience and security. So welcome back, Patrick. Great to see you again. Nick, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me again. This is a really timely discussion, given all the things that are going on in the world today. So really looking forward to this conversation. All right, excellent. Okay, and our question master for today is Jenny. Jenny Hepler, who joins us from Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania in the US. Um, now, we do have quite a few. We've got four or five people, actually, from the United States here joining us today on Level Up. So I was originally going to ask her if she supports the Eagles or the Steelers, but I'm not going to ask that question. Instead, I'm actually going to ask her to have a little think about which of the United States do not have an NFL team. And Rick, now that you've moved to California, my friend, I think you've got four. So you could donate one to somebody that doesn't have an NFL team working <laughs> and living and playing in their home state, all right? Um, Jenny's only got two, so... You know, I'm not sure if it's fair. I think it's better to come back to you, Rick, and say, come on, you know, four, that's just excessive, even for California. All right, I think that's a bit much. All right, very good. Let's jump into it because I'm already out of my depth as an Englishman about North American sport. It's not going to end well, is it? Let's move on straight away um, and kind of see uh, our first question. I think let's start with our first question, Jenny, and then we'll come to all of the good folks online. Okay. Great. So we've got a running start today. So we have a live question to start off with. This is from Eddie Edgar. I am not from the USA, so how will NCSP help me? All right. Okay. So let's get straight into it. Um, let's start with David, please. And then we'll hear from Patrick. I'd like to start with something that you said at the beginning of the program, Nick, and that is that the NIST cybersecurity framework has gained worldwide traction. So while it originates in the United States, it actually deals with providing guidance that is used all over the world. And it references not just the NIST publications to deal with cybersecurity controls, but others as well, including ISO 27000. 
Okay, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. So it's a, it doesn't, it's not a local thing, you know, it's not a local thing at all. Uh, Patrick, your thoughts, please, and then we'll hear from Rick. So one of the challenges we've seen in helping organizations do cybersecurity adoption is facilitating conversations between business stakeholders and technical people, right? How do we identify, prioritize, and manage investments in where cybersecurity resources need to go? We could spend an unlimited amount of money on various types of cybersecurity capabilities, but last I checked, none of us have that. So part of using a framework like the NIST cybersecurity framework is to help organizations rationalize their decisions about security, right? How do we make that an integrated part of our digital strategy? And how do we ensure that we can create and protect services effectively at the same time? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the world of IT operations can be a terrifying place because uh, organizations are, you know, it's, going screamingly quickly into digital transformation. There are more services, more products, more endpoints, more more devices connecting into systems and services than ever before. You know, even my dishwasher at home now is on my home network. Quite what it's doing there, I have no idea. But the point is, is that you can't slow down. You need protection. You need to have a framework which is going to work properly at pace and at scale. So I completely agree with your comment there about not having the money. And you, we also don't have the time, quite frankly, to um, to uh, mess about either. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, let's move on. Rick, your thoughts, please. And then Sabajit. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been, I've been involved with NCSP from the beginning. And so I've had lots of conversations with lots of folks across the globe. And um, it's interesting because the, the NIST framework itself, you know, it's kind of the universal, the universal approach to, you know, managing cyber risk. So it's something that everyone completely understands and that everyone has an immediate need to do. Um, what I have found uh, throughout my journey is that um, some international countries have adopted the framework as is. In fact, they, they name it by name. And in other, other instances, some companies have adopted the concepts of the framework, but call it something else. But at the end of the day, you know, the outcomes enabled by the framework are, are, are identical. So it, it's, it's a situation now where, <clears throat> in terms of the question, you know, that uh, organizations and, and governments are now starting to uh, put in place, you know, the requirement for uh, professionals who understand the NIST cybersecurity framework. So it is globally you know, applicable and is growing daily. In fact, I think in just in the last uh, couple of months or so, <clears throat> there have been lots of changes across the globe in the regulatory environment, as well as the legal environment, as well as, you know, uh, holding executive teams and boards accountable. So, so you're going to start to see the requirement for the NIST cybersecurity professional show up uh, in, in many job postings and opportunity postings that will, uh, be coming out over the next few months. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I look after Australia as a territory and I was talking with a colleague over there, um, just earlier on this week and, um, quite a large number of job, um, placements now on the job boards, uh, you know, and so on for you to apply for actually mention the NIST cybersecurity framework, all right, or NIST. 
Usually it's just NIST. They don't always expand it mm. to the whole thing. Um, but it is starting to get actually a real shout out. So that's brilliant to see and proof of that statement. So I totally agree with that. Sarbajit, final thoughts on this, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, what I want to say is as long as we are from this universe or this world and not aliens, uh, we all would have the same issue of the security concern. And um, the digital transformation is something that all organizations are now uh, adopting. So in that scenario, it is very critical to protect your assets and the risk to the organization. And NIST precisely does that. So whether you are in US or outside, you need that protection. And um, as Rick said, many many uh, countries are following that directly, indirectly. So wherever you are, Eddie, I would say that you will need something. And uh, why not NCSP? All right. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. So brilliant. What a great uh, question to start us off. Okay. Um, because good practice can pop up anywhere in the world and um, uh, it then you know catches people's imaginations and it gets adopted by the standards bodies and then it gets rolled out. And that's exactly what is happening here. So let's find out who is online around the world. Liam is joining us um, again. Uh, a regular viewer, Liam Reddy, thank you so much for joining us from Norwich in the east of the UK, um, if you're trying to place that city on the map. Mark is in London. Well, um, just, just to the east of where I am, actually. I'm in the Thames Valley, Mark. So really great. Great to have you joining us um, today. And some other folks who are online include uh, Kinga, who is joining us, again, a regular viewer from Warsaw in Poland. So really good to see you online today, Kinga. I don't think you were up quite early enough for us on Monday. Maybe you were. I, we may have missed you. Okay, so if you were, I apologize. Um, and uh, a couple of other folks, if we've got them, please, that would be really great. I can see some other people online as well. Um, Shanice is joining us from South Wales, of course. Um, Shanice is, uh, uh, of course, one of the APMG team um, today. She's over in the west of the UK in the very beautiful area, actually, in South Wales. So thank you, Shanice. And one final person to select. We've got Nigel, who's um, listening in from Cape Town in South Africa, down there in the Western yeah. Cape. Um, so marvellous. Thank you very much indeed. So, Jenny, I can see that we're getting some questions. And if you're online, by the way, I want to see those questions coming in. So don't just watch, okay? Do join in. Put in your questions about cyber security, and in particular around the NIST cybersecurity framework and how to become a professional in this space into the chat. And the social team will pick it up. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us from uh, Bahrain. Really good to see you live online today. Very good. Jenny, let's take our next question, please, while we wait for the live questions to come in. Sure, Nick. Another great question. This one is from Tom Jenkins. What does it mean to be a NIST cybersecurity professional? How is that different from a cybersecurity professional without the NIST part? All right. Okay, Mike, why don't you start us off, please, and then we'll hear from David. Sure. You know, cybersecurity is such a broad uh, range of areas. Uh, everything from penetration testing, threat hunting, analysts, forensics, we could go on and on, right? So to say that I'm a cybersecurity professional is like saying that I'm an electrical engineer 
what area did I focus? Or I'm a doctor, what area did I focus in? So there's lots of different areas to focus in to be a NIST cybersecurity professional is really focused being becoming a specialist in not only what uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework is about, the NIST risk management framework, but a number of the informative references that, you know, if I kind of kind of look at the framework and I say, I've got, you know, my framework and I've got my informative reference. When I put those together, I have a, an industry focused uh, set of controls that I'm becoming a specialist in. So I might be in that specific industry, be it federal or or, you know, pharmaceutical or, or the electrical grid, you know, those kinds of things. So uh, to be a NIST cybersecurity professional really focuses on I'm an expert in the controls. I know what the controls are. I know what they mean. I know what the functionality and capability is that I need to uh, provide or adhere to to pass that audit. Uh, and I think where where the uh, NIST cybersecurity professional training and certification coming through the DVMS Institute, where we differ is typically the end game is past the audit. Uh, what we want to do is operationalize those controls, put in continual uh, improvement, always do better today than we did yesterday. And so to be a NIST cybersecurity professional uh, through the DVMS program uh, is really focused on how do we uh, continually improve and, and um, uh, just be a much stronger player in the cybersecurity industry. Spot on. And uh, if I may, I might come back to you because we tend to talk about controls within the cyber community um, uh, and we're very familiar with what that means. But I might come back to you, Mike, in a few minutes to expand on controls a little bit further. Um, David, your thoughts, please. And then we'll hear from Patrick. Yeah, I'd like to expand a little bit on what Mike said, but also talk about the difference between the NIST cybersecurity professional program and other cybersecurity certifications. Most of the others focus on the technical aspect of cybersecurity, whereas the NIST cybersecurity program starts with placing the responsibility at the highest levels of the organization. If the company's big enough, then it's at the board level. If it's small, and then it's with whatever the leadership team is of that organization. Because ultimately, the NIST cybersecurity professional program says that the issue is not about managing cyber risk, but rather managing digital business risk. And mm. I come out of this from a software development background. And one of the things that used to drive me nuts was software that was designed that was hard to test. It wasn't designed to be testable and the QA process followed the development process. One of the things that we do within this cybersecurity professional program is say it's not create, then protect. It's create and protect so that they become concurrent activities to manage digital business risk. And that's one of the primary differences between the NIST cybersecurity professional program and other cybersecurity certifications. And that's really, really good to know because, you know, people are hiring at pace and scale as well. So they want talented people, yes, but they also want people who are focused on outcomes, you know, not on process. And so from that perspective, that would make complete <clears throat> sense to me. And I think that's possibly as well why so many regulatory bodies and um, national cybersecurity centers, they're really championing 
you know, the NIST framework as part of their threat response and building up that national resilience. Very good. Patrick, your thoughts, please, and then we'll hear from Rick. So each of the first two speakers have alluded to this idea of focusing on, you know, how do we make sure we can pass an audit? How do we make sure we can achieve some level of compliance with various legal, regulatory, external constraints. There's a little more to that, though, right? Which is, does this provide a sufficient level of protection, ability to detect and respond and recover that helps your organization build resilience? And so one of the benefits of using the NIST cybersecurity Uh-oh. Okay, so I think we've just lost um, the connection uh, through to Patrick. So we'll get him to rejoin uh, momentarily and hopefully we'll get a better link. Uh, Rick, give us your final thoughts on this one, please. Is it a. Okay, I guess I just heard Patrick in my headset. So <laughs> I, um, I, I kind of I, I've looked at, you know, the NIST cybersecurity professional in terms of. It's really a uh, an opportunity for individuals and organizations to manage the business of cybersecurity, right? Because cybersecurity risk management is a business problem or a business opportunity. So, in in terms of you know, there, there's a technical side to cyber and there's a business side to cyber. And this cybersecurity focus professional is focused on the business side. Now, what what that means is that not only do you know, people from the IT organization and the cybersecurity organization need to have the, the skill sets associated with being a NIST cybersecurity professional, but it also requires the business side of the business to have those skills as well. So whether you're, a, you know, you're a legal advisor to an organization or you're a, you know, quality advisor or an operations advisor, you know, these are things that those individuals, the skills that those individuals need to have as well to participate in that management of, of the cybersecurity cyber uh, risk profile of an organization. So that's, uh, when, I, when I talk to folks about this, it's really about, you know, think about this in terms of the business itself. These are business capabilities. Patrick mentioned resiliency. Resiliency is a key component of this. So that's really how you need to be thinking about it in, in comparison to the technical side of cyber, which ties into the uh, programs that Mike mentioned in terms of ethical hacking and testing and things like that. Okay, it's starting to make more sense for me now because I, I'm beginning to get that little bit more of a kind of, you know, focused view as to why it is so relevant and why it's resonating so much in the market. Um, David, uh, just add a couple of comments on and then I want to revert to Mike. All right, I want to pick up on something that Rick alluded to, and that is the fact that one of the changes that we made um, in developing the NIST cybersecurity framework and our program, uh, not the framework NIST did that, we developed the cybersecurity professional, is that we said that instead of looking at cybersecurity as a technical endeavor, look at it as an aspect of quality. Because the relationship between quality and value is critical for an organization. Customers get to decide what value is. They also get to decide what quality is to them. So that if the organization takes a cybersecurity as an aspect of quality, that's one of the things that deals with 
create and protect. And it goes back to something that Phil Crosby wrote about decades ago in his book, Quality is Free. It's free if you do it from the beginning. It's costly if you try and deal with it serially. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I really like that one. Actually, I'm going to make a note um, of that. It's free if you do it from the beginning and it's expensive. Okay. If you have to <laughs> yeah, kind of sure. do it retrospectively. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Excellent. Now, Mike, we had a, a question a little earlier that appeared in my mind. You were talking about this concept of controls, you know, controls in cyber. And you were saying it's, um, you know, it's embedded within the framework. And you were talking about that. So just for those folks who are a little bit less aware, um, how would you go about describing these controls? What are they? Nick, I'm so glad you brought that back to me because uh, I've got some real strong feelings about it, but I'm going to try to do it very quickly. So the control within the framework is something that an organization must do, must adhere to, to pass an audit. So it really is a, a series of, I, I could call it best practices. It's not necessarily, but it's this is what you should do. And when you really think about a control, the control is, and I'm going to be in the negative term here, the least acceptable, the lowest level that you need to adhere to functionality and capability-wise to pass the audit. Just think mm-hmm. about what I just said. On the IT side, we have ITIL, the IT Infrastructure Library, and that's all about best practices, doing better today than I did yesterday. On the, on the cyber side, we have controls. And so what happens? On the cyber side, it's all about pass the audit. That's the end game. That's the desired state. Pass the audit. Could you pass the mustard? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it <laughs> goes back, right? It goes back to business as usual. And there's this always, always this stress and angst about, you know, self-assessment and audit coming up. And what we've, we've done with this program is try to wrap that best practices process improvement. Let's do better today than we did yesterday. If we've passed an audit, not as the end state, but as the current state. And we start from there and we're always doing better than we did yesterday. Well, we've just, from an organizational standpoint, removed all of that angst and frustration about self-assessments and ongoing audits. And I say to my customers, I want them to be so well prepared. The auditor could show up in the parking lot, call up for a, you know a, an unexpected audit, and you say, come on in. The coffee's on. The donuts are ready. Let's go. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. That's super helpful. I completely agree with you. I, I did see an interesting image um, uh, recently that had an unpaved road and a very short piece of tarmac representing the audit. And then the, <laughs> the road returned to the unpaved, unmade um, version. All right. So yep. some of the folks, uh, Mitra has joined us from uh, Washington, D.C., uh, also in the USA. We have some other folks online as well from different countries um, who I can see in the chat. Uh, Ahmed, I called out a little while ago uh, from Bahrain. So um, really great to have you online again, uh, my friend. So thank you for joining us um, on a Friday. And um, we also have um, uh, a few regular people um, joining as well from different countries. Um, I'm just going to call you guys out in a moment. Uh, We've got Adriana, of course, watching from London. I can see Diane, who's joined us, and she's in um, the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. We've got uh, Willie Hernandez as well. Now, Willie, I'm trying to find out where in the world you're joining from, my friend. And at the moment, I can't 
I can't see the city in my list. So apologies for that. But wherever you are, you're most welcome. Let's return to Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania and Jenny Hepler. And let's take our next question, please. Jenny. Thanks, Nick. The next question is from Diane, a live viewer. To become a NIST cybersecurity professional, do you have to familiarize yourself with national data protection policy? Well, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because this often mm. dovetails in an expert who mm. are looking after one umbrella area are often asked to become lawyers <laughs> in terms of data protection. Mm. Patrick, what kind of advice do you give uh, generally? And then we'll go to Sabership. So one of the contributing inputs for any cybersecurity risk management program is what are our external legal and regulatory rules. And so you certainly need to be familiar with any external legal regulatory constraints that affect how and how much cybersecurity control you need to apply in certain contexts to meet those external requirements. One thing I do want to emphasize, that might not be sufficient, right? Mm. So meeting those external requirements <clears throat> might keep you in good stead from the external auditor's point of view, but it may or may not do what you need to do internally to optimize the level of data protection that you may need for certain critical assets. Okay, all right. It's a really good guidance as well, because many regulators, when they were spun up a few years ago, began with very general guidance, and they've been getting clearer and clearer as case law has progressed, and what is acceptable behavior has changed in different territories and different jurisdictions. So really good. Thank you very much indeed. Sabajit, your thoughts, please, and then we'll hear from Rick. Right. Now, Patrick um, gave us the view from a cybersecurity perspective, then look into the privacy part. I would say for privacy, you know, when we talk about data privacy, what do we mean? Privacy is about a person data and their right to remain, you know, uh, to, to be not to be, you know, uh, exposed are open to public. They want to stay obscure. They can't. Now, having said that, one part of privacy is to keep the data secured. Okay. So when we need to have the data secured, we have to apply the cybersecurity, um, the uh, the context and also the controls that uh, we talked about earlier. So those controls will then enable the data privacy to be perfect. Otherwise, if I'm not able to protect the data, uh, even if I comply to other requirements, my data privacy, um, you know, the compliance is not complete or perfect. Thank you. All right, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Rick, final thoughts on this one? Yeah, just to follow up with both Patrick and Sabajet, um, I, I always like to kind of simplify things uh, just as I have conversations with different types of folks who may or may not have deep backgrounds in the cybersecurity or cybersecurity risk management space. And I basically tell them there are two things you are responsible for. One is to protect the data and one is to protect the organizational resiliency. Right. These are the two things that, that the auditors you know, will be assessing your capabilities 
to deliver and in, in, in to protect that data and to protect an organization's resiliency. So, so in terms of the question, it's absolutely important to become familiar, you know, with, you know, the national data protection policy, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the rules, right? It's all about the rules and who sets the rules and who, who assesses whether or not you're meeting the rules. And so what we have seen, you know, just recently across the globe, across multiple countries, governments, and so on, is that the uh, the rules have changed, uh, where they are now holding, you know, organizations and the te- and the management teams responsible for those organizations accountable. They have to personally sign off on, you know, the cybersecurity program and, and you know and, and its capabilities, so that if something should, you know, were to go wrong, and they determine that. You know the program wasn't correct, and then the executive team is is being held accountable. Um, so it's it's really important to understand what the rules are, and the rules are somewhat similar in a lot of cases, but different in other cases. So it's a good idea for you to, you know, as you become a cybersecurity professional, to become familiar with the local rules or the regulatory requirements and any other requirements associated with protecting the data and the organizational resiliency. Yeah, thank you very much. And 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 here's the shout out now to everybody who is online because we do have a different um uh, stance, if you like, being taken by regulatory bodies around the world in different countries. Um, uh, some are very, very clear in what they're looking for in terms of uh, things like data protection, others a little less so, but it is all moving forward and becoming clearer. Um, Willie has very kindly shared with us that he's um, joined us today from Canada, which is really great um, to see. So thank you for for letting me know um, whereabouts you are. And also we've got Chifundo, who is joining us actually from Chicago in Illinois. So uh, up in the Midwest, I think, there. Um, Chicago at this time of year can be a little on the chilly side, I think, February. February in Chicago, you need to wear your big coat. All right, Chifundo, at least that's that's what my last experience was when I was there. All right, very good. So excellent. Do let us know. So here's a question then to all of the viewers who are online. Okay, do you agree with the panel that you know the world of cyber um, is often conflict? Conflagated with the world of data protection and in particular the legislation and the rules that go with it. So if you are asked for your opinion and you're a cyber in this world of cybersecurity and you're online um, around about those two worlds coming together and you agree with the panel, then do let us know in the chat. Whereas if you're generally think that they're quite separate in your organization and those two worlds don't collide then equally so speak up please so that we can see you in the chat online that would be really great now jenny i can see the live questions are stacking up so we better pick up the pace panel let's move on and we'll take our next question please our next question is from ahmed how can i obtain the ncsp and how much does it cost all right. Okay. So two really practical questions, um, Ahmed, to uh, really get us going on this. Mike, why don't you start us off, please? Yeah. Um, very simple. Send me an email. <laughs> I will get you the information <laughs> and get you started for sure. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You did. Now, the, yeah. in all seriousness, though, folks, if you're online and you're on LinkedIn, this is a really easy thing for you to do because all of the panel's profiles and their LinkedIn profiles are actually 
um, available to you and we all welcome connections professional connections please so um please don't house um, a colleague posted actually um just this week he is the head of project management education for a very large training provider and he got a request a message on LinkedIn saying, do you want to buy some project management training? Don't do things like that because it doesn't really work very well. <laughs> but, but a professional connection will be warmly welcomed. So please do, you know, connect with us on LinkedIn and explore a little bit. And the whole panel is here to help you in your careers, okay, to level you up and get you going. And of course, costs do vary. But you know what? I would suggest to you, everybody, do have a little think about this. This is your career, all right, in all seriousness. And um, if we think about worth, worth is usually the price somebody is willing to pay value when it comes to choosing education, professional development, training, and so on for a career perspective is all about the value. Build your future career based on selecting a partner in that professional development journey. Rick, you've worked in this space for many years. What are your thoughts on this question? Yeah, it, it, I, I guess it always you know comes down to it depends what you know what outcome you're trying to achieve or, or enable, right? So, for instance, if you're someone who is in an organization, let's say in a business role, and and you you know want to get smart about cybersecurity and and what your role is and 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 you're deterring you know the risk associated with cybersecurity. You can start with an awareness course, you know, which was which is a very lo low cost of entry. You get the training, you get the digital badge, you get a get the corresponding book that goes along with it. If you want to expand upon that, okay. If you're someone who is basically involved in uh, developing the business case, so that leadership can understand exactly, you know, what the investment needs to be to to enable this capability, then the foundations program will provide you enough baseline knowledge to be able to to deliver what the management team is expecting so that they can make a decision. Mm. And then if you're a person who's responsible for engineering, implementing, operating, and continually improving or innovating the program, you can go as high as the practitioner or specialist level. And so that will give you all of the knowledge and capabilities you need to perform those duties. So you can start out, you know, on the on the low end of the spectrum in terms of getting the basic knowledge, you know, the 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 cost going into that is very, very low. And then you can migrate up through the different levels and the cost will go up incrementally because the value you're getting back, the knowledge you're getting back is, is, is incremental as well. So it really depends on where you want to take yourself in terms of your professional career or where your organization needs you to go to support their cybersecurity risk management program. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. And some great thoughts there for you to start you off, or indeed if you're mid-career and you're really looking to get some evidence base to prove your aptitude in this area and plug straight into that better role, either internally or, or with another organization. You know, this is a fantastic time to be cross-training yourself or upskilling yourself even you know, to move into these more senior leadership positions. You know, it's going to be a critical path for everybody. So, very good. Let's move on. If we can, Jenny, we'll take our next question, please. The next question is from Willie. From your experience, what area of the NIST domains is most difficult for companies to pass? All right, very good. Patrick, start us off. 
Now, there's a couple things I want to highlight in the question, right? The first one is that the NIST framework is not something that you pass or you fail, right? It describes a set of outcomes, a set of results your organization is trying to achieve. And all of them are subject to scope, right? You're going to make different decisions about how and how much of that you require based on your organization's both external requirements and internal needs. Uh, when you look specifically at the NIST domains, most organizations spend most of their energy on trying to identify critical assets and protect them, right? And this makes perfect sense if you think of it. But what they often underinvest in is their ability to detect, for example, when their preventative controls have failed so that they can quickly respond and recover to limit the damage, right? So part of adopting the NIST cybersecurity framework is a little bit about changing your mental model from how do I protect everything to how do I build resilience so that if my preventative controls fail, the organization can adapt and respond in a way that it can sustain itself. You know, it's such an important thing, isn't it? You you need to round out your capability in the organization. You need to build this 360-degree resilience, if I if I can call it that way. Um, but at the same time, you, you also need to have an eye on where the organization is traveling. What's the direction of travel? You know, uh, you know, doing things the way that you're doing them today might not be how they're going to evolve in the very near future. Uh, David, your thoughts on this, and then we'll hear from Rick. Uh, um, <clears throat> pardon me, to piggyback on what Patrick said, um, the way that you have to look at the NIST framework is basically a governance decision to adopt the framework as guidance. Then it's up to the organization to adapt that framework and the way that they approach it to meet their needs. And the questions about what most difficult to pass, if you look at what we did within this cybersecurity professional program, we provide an overlay that allows the organization to determine its gaps between where it is and where it needs to be and the adaptations that it needs to make in order to close those gaps. So from a very, very generic perspective, the not so much issues of passing, but rather closing the cybersecurity gaps are going to depend upon the discovery of the current state and planning of the desired state. And the bigger that gap is, you know, something like this is going to be harder to deal with than if the gap is like this. Understand. Yeah, it's a really, really good way to think about it. Thank you very much indeed. Rick, final thoughts? Yeah, just to follow up on both David and Patrick, um, and I think they both covered a good majority of, of you know, the areas that, you know, that companies need to focus on and, and, to, and what to do, you know, to successfully pass that audit or deliver that capability. Uh, for me, I, I think, you know, one of the areas that's most difficult for companies to pass is to change their culture, all right, because that's an integral part of a successful you know, cybersecurity risk management or digital business risk management program. You got to get people to think and act differently. 
right? And that starts at the top of the organization with senior leadership adopting, you know, those those programs and policies, and then propagating that into management policies, into operational policies, and into business policies. So everyone's always thinking before they act. They're always suspect about what's being presented to them to ensure that it is truly trustable and cl- and clickable, if you will, uh, in order to mm. to do their jobs. And I think that's where we're heading. And I think, you know, the NISAP security professional program, you know, is kind of a two-step process. First thing organizations need to do is to is to stabilize their existing environment. But going through what David and Patrick mentioned is they need to do their assessment, need to understand their current state, they need to engineer and implement their future state, and then they need to continually innovate that state going forward. And part of that is is basically you know, beginning to, you know, change their culture or operationalize mm-hmm. a culture of risk management. And I think that's one of the most challenging things to do. But with senior leader sponsorship and pushing that down through the organization, through management, through operational policies, it, it's absolutely doable. Yeah, I'm going to come back to culture in a few minutes because it is such a very, very important part of moving an organization forward and how we work as leaders, whether we're thought leaders, whether we're situational leaders in teams, whether we are, you know, even individual contributors in different meetings, different times, the way in which you do your work can really help others follow better practice than they have been following so far. If you can demonstrate to that, to them firsthand. Um, Mike, final thoughts on this one, then we'll move on. Yeah, so it's more of a, you know, not not is it uh, so difficult to to pass or adhere to the, the control, uh, but what I find a difficult uh, exercise for the client or the organization is in the response area. So from a control standpoint, I have to have an incident response plan. That's a document. And it says, what are we going to do when we have an incident? And unfortunately, most organizations don't exercise that. Uh, they're, they're exercising their incident response plan in the middle of a crisis. And mm-hmm. so getting the senior leadership to understand that they participate, they sit down. So we would typically do what's called a tabletop exercise. We come in, the executives have to be in there, their IT support team, their security team, if they have a managed service provider and you come in and and you present them with a a very real scenario and what you're doing is you're finding gaps or identifying where they need to do better where they can cut their time down and and often the biggest challenge is number one doing that and number two getting the executives to participate because no one wants to be told their baby's ugly kind of thing so so they don't (laughs) like they don't like hearing that but it really is an important exercise to fine-tune that response so it becomes a natural uh, uh you know natural thing you know i i completely agree with that it's quite funny isn't it it's like um oh we don't need to think about that now we're past that crisis it's a once in a hundred years you know kind of event okay and it's a bit like it's a bit like if if you've ever played a board game you know trying to roll two two dice or die and get a double six <laughs> okay yeah, it does happen it might be no, I was going to say it's it's like my to do list. As soon as I put it on the to do list, it's like it's done. So I go on to other things, you know. And then I look back three yeah. months later; it's still on my to do list. So 
that's what it is. It's completely true, completely true. Mitra makes a really good point, actually, in the social online. She's talking about different avenues, different resources for cybersecurity professionals. So um, it is worthwhile doing your research, of course, and joining us you know, throughout the discussions, um, not just on today's show, but also on some of those uh, culture developments. So Monday, we're talking about developing a culture of inclusivity. And of course, that's about hearing different views, different opinions, and being able to perhaps challenge some of those, you know, sacred areas of organizations, which we know are often defended very well by the loud and the noisy people in um, mm. Uh, positions of responsibility. All right. Very good, uh, Mitra. Thank you so much indeed. Um, Some great suggestions from her as well about exploring career pathways. So excellent. Mitra, I think we're going to have to get you on the panel. You can't, you can't hang around, okay, just in the chat. Um, we're going to get you on, online, all right, and joining us here soon. I'll send one of the talent management team a little a little question, and then uh, they'll see if they can get in touch with you, if you would like to. It would be brilliant to have you on board. Okay, very good. Let's move on, Jenny. Time is against us. I think we can fit one or two more questions in if we hurry. The next question is from Mark. How long does it typically take to prepare for and pass the certification, and what are the costs involved and study mechanisms? All right. So I think there's a variety of answers to this one. David, why don't you start us off around, you know, that learning journey? Um, when I was teaching the idle material, um, I used to get the question, how long does it take to study this and learn to pass the exam? And my answer was always the same. And it's typical for this one as well. How long does it take to learn how to ride a bicycle? If the only thing you do with the bicycle is try and get on it five or 10 minutes once a week or once a month, it's going to take a long time. But if the child is dedicated to learning how to ride the bike, they can do it basically in a day. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can learn and study in a day, but I am suggesting that the amount of time that it takes depends upon your diligence. It depends upon your study habits. It depends upon the way that you approach the material. And the other issue is that the NCSP certifications require that you take a course so that your journey to pass the exam is started by the excellence of the instructors. And then it's up to you to read the books, study the material, and then take the exam when you're ready. Okay, Ellen, um, thank you so much indeed. That's really super helpful. Um, Patrick, why don't you um, help us out here a little bit, and then we'll hear from Rick. So one part of the question gets at study mechanisms. So you can study for these credentials using a self-study e-learning approach. You can take in-person or virtually delivered classroom training for the programs. Um, Each of them come bundled with a book that provides a pretty significant deep dive into really how to think about using the NIST framework, both from an adoption perspective 
and in terms of adapting it to help your organization make decisions about how and how much to do. <clears throat> and so, you know, obviously there are different price points for self-study versus classroom training and then the levels of certification you're seeking. But ultimately, you can do the entire program self-study. A lot of people do the foundation program self-study and then do the practitioner program in person. Um, there's some significant reasons why that might be beneficial. You get some exposure to some different types of experiences that I think you'll really get some significant benefit from. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Rick, briefly, and then we'll hear from Mike. Absolutely. Um, the first thing I want to state is that you know there are no prerequisites to taking these courses, so you don't have to have you know a master's degree in cybersecurity, or you don't have to be a technologist. You can come in off the street from any background and get into these programs and successfully complete them. What I want to do real quick is just use a case study, and this involves Mike as well, where you know, this past summer we had uh, four interns from a local university uh, come into the program. <clears throat> they all took the NCSP course. They all had to get through the examination piece of it as well. And then Mike actually had them basically do an assessment of his company and report back to Mike as to what you know what gaps he needed to mitigate in order to achieve you know uh, cyber cyber resiliency, and I had the pleasure of uh, attending the uh, presentation that the candidates did upon completion of their work, and and I will tell you it was quite impressive. In fact, I, I what I saw was you know young people who you know had no legacy to deal with, they were pure sponges. They were able to get get you know become one with the content and one with the you know, the, the uh, knowledge that the content enabled, then turn that into a deliverable. So just, just really right. one live example of three individuals who went through the course, successfully completed it, and had no background in, the, in, the, in cybersecurity at all. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, Mark, I hope that that's helpful to you. Um, it's certainly a, you know, uh, a key thing. You know, um, learning is catalytic. And if you have great educators and great content and you dedicate yourself into that and immerse yourself in that experience, um, you will, really will get the full value out of it. Very good. Jenny, let's pick up the pace. We can squeeze one more question in if we're super quick. Next question, please. Sure, this, this next question is from Jonathan. I think this follows a little bit with what Rick was just saying. Um, I currently work in project management and want to change careers to be a cybersecurity professional. Where do I start and is it realistic to achieve? Okay. All right, Mike. Well, we're going to take two answers to this one. So Mike, start us off and then we'll hear from Sabajit. Sure. And I, and I know we're short on time, so I'll go quickly. Um, I love this question. I'm asked this question all the time. And with the amount of, of a uh, federal contracts, government contracts I'm on, I'm looking at a lot of resumes, I'm looking at a lot of job descriptions. I can assure you uh, qualifications for that or requirements for the job descriptions are coming up. NIST cybersecurity framework, NIST 853, NIST, you know, the, they are asking for it at all levels, project managers, scrum masters, engineers. So my, what I would encourage all of you <laughs> is even, even if it's just the basics, it will help you in every job look through the lens or see your, your function through the lens of cybersecurity. 
it, it is it is key. And uh, as a project manager, think about this. Um, yeah, you could change careers into cybersecurity or you could expand your career into cybersecurity. So as a mm-hmm. project manager or a scrum master, you know, you're going to be leading those projects. And so maybe you're not the technical, you know, geek that's going to be elbows deep into the technology, but you can be the one at the table laying out the pathway forward. You can be the one at the table that's asking the questions. Have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Well, how are we adhering to this? So I I think project managers, scrum masters, I'm all for it. And uh, I encourage all my folks that, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it at least at the foundation level to make sure that that, uh, that perspective that we have is cyber focused. I think that is a absolute diamond of advice. Extend your career. Don't switch. Don't think of it as switching. Think of it as an extension. And you're absolutely spot on there. Thank you very mm-hmm. much indeed, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarvajit, final thoughts on this, please. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you. So just taking... Um, you know, Mike's words a little bit more and say that, yeah, as a project manager, you are managing projects and maybe, I don't know what kind of projects uh, Jonathan is currently managing, but if you want to manage cybersecurity projects, just start with the awareness. If you are not from the cybersecurity, you know, domain, just, just start with the awareness and then maybe you can go to foundation if need be and then manage projects. And you know what, if you go and check with uh, the NICE where they talk about the skills and the gaps in there, there are a lot of scope. What, uh, you know, Mike said, there are a lot and lots of job out there and there is a huge gap. So it will be very nice for people like you, Jonathan, who wants to extend their career into cybersecurity. All the best to you. Thank you. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Sabajit. And what some great questions today and some great comments from our folks online as well. Mohammed um, has said it's it's rather like a builder, you know, if the builder understands some of the project management uh, techniques, they can be much more efficient and so on. So this hybridization, that this extension of our core competency into new areas is absolutely the direction of travel. Closing remarks now, panel. I'm afraid we've run out of time, so we're going to be super quick with these. Um, Patrick, your final thoughts on today, and then we'll hear from Sabajit. So the NIST Cybersecurity Professional Program does a really good job of answering a significant gap in the cybersecurity space. How do we bridge the technical disciplines with the business requirements and the business needs to effectively manage digital business risk. So if you're working with customers and stakeholders and having trouble helping them identify and prioritize and fund cybersecurity investments, this credential would really help you and help your organization in that journey. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick, Sabajit, and then David. Well, all I can say is, yes, all those who are thinking about it, just don't think, send us any one of the panelists an email or just follow us and then we can guide you and uh, you can get your career enhanced. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Soldier. And I know that's a very genuine um, offer. Uh, David and then Rick, please. And I'll also piggyback on what Shabrajit said. If you're curious, Reach out to any of us. I'm sure that speaking for the rest of the panel will be delighted to help. 
we designed the whole DVMS scheme as an overlay, which means it's not one size fits all, but one size adaptable by all. So it's scalable. It works from small organizations to large organizations, and it addresses every single topic that we've talked about today. Culture, the entire organization, managing digital business risk, controls, et cetera. So that we tried to make this as comprehensive as we could from a business perspective. What does the business have to do to deliver digital business value that creates and protects that value? Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, Rick, final thoughts, and then we'll hear from Mike. Absolutely. Um, well, just want reiterating the fact that, you know, the, the, the rules have changed. Uh, risk management or cyber risk management or digital business risk management has moved to the top of the pyramid, which in turn is creating an opportunity for new professionals in that space across the entire seg- you know, segment of the business. So I think it's, a per- it's, you know, it's kind of the perfect storm to, to enter this field. Uh, based upon you know where organizations and governments are taking their cybersecurity programs. Absolutely. Spot on in terms of timing. Right place, right time, I think. Um, Mike, your thoughts, and then we'll hear from Jenny. Quite, quite simply, Nick, uh, if the listeners want to uh, improve their career, enhance their career, uh, protect their organization, allow their organization to become re- real, uh, more resilient, just get started. You just need to get started. And we've made it easy to do. Very true. It's very structured and very accessible. Jenny, final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say thank you to the panel uh, for your excellent answers and to the live viewers with all of the questions today. We had a lot of questions um, and it's great to see within the questions that so many people are interested now in getting into uh, cybersecurity. I think it's, you know, it's growing at an exponential rate. So it's, it's great to have these shows, um, all of you on with these questions and advice um, for those looking to get into this further. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. And a very active audience we've had online as well. So on behalf of the audience, I'm going to say thank you so much to our panellists for giving their time so generously. And on behalf of the panellists, I'd like to thank you, our producers, for your excellent questions today. Really great job. And do watch out for your name in the credits if your question was selected. Um, So uh, over on our website, you can, of course, search for the answers to all of the previous questions that were asked on Level Up. It's more than 1,500, I think, now. A comprehensive resource that connects you with um, 170-plus experts from around the world. And don't forget, you can listen to the audio versions of the shows on your preferred podcast platform. Just search for uh, Level Up Your Career with APMG International. Take a moment, if you would, hop over to our YouTube channel, like, comment, and subscribe to the content. And if you share it, it doesn't cost you anything. And it really does help new folks discover it and help them to level up their careers. Looking forward next week on Monday morning, we're going to be exploring how to build a culture of inclusivity, um, which is always a challenge for every organization, small, medium, or large in size and scale. And across the week, you'll find 
links on our website to the World BRM or Business Relationship Management Week, um, which is running throughout. On Friday the 10th, well, we're going to be looking at careers in service management. So do tune in for that one. All of the details are over on our website. Subscribe to the show and we'll send you a personal summary of what's coming up and how you too can join us here on the panel and level up your career with APMG. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.